Welcome everybody. I am Karen and I'm exploring an idea. I have this idea that all the domains of knowledge line up at some point and that those connections are something that we can actually find and perceive. And then this morning of all things, I ran across, well, this is already a thing, it's out there. It's called Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem, which I'm gonna read right here. <clears throat> So this is just sort of an, this is somebody else's description of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Demonstrated that any internally consistent and logical system of propositions must necessarily be predicated upon assumptions that cannot be proved from within the confines of that system. And this is what I've been struggling with and thinking about lately, that there must be something outside all these systems that creates these connections. And so I'm talking to people and I'm trying to find out from people um, things that they might know in, within their own domain. And today I have with me Travis, who has the domain of music and maybe many other domains besides that. So I want to get Travis's take on this because I have this other idea that we have this thing called experiential DNA, which is... Um, all of our life experiences and all the books we've read and the music we've listened to and the, the uh, anything we might have written or thought about, all of our lives makes us who we are and it may, means that all the information we take in goes through that filter and all the information we give out goes through that filter. So everyone has a unique filter and a contribution and that's how we're going to get a, a com more complete knowledge of how the universe is put together. So my guest today is Travis, and Travis, welcome. Good morning. And Travis, I'm hoping you can tell us something about yourself, how you came to this place in life, and how you got into music, and anything else you'd like to tell us. Oh boy, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep this shortish, um, otherwise we could fill the hour with that. Um, pretty much, I, uh, I grew up on a farm in north central North Dakota. Uh, I was, oh, what? I'm in my mid-40s now, so I was born in the mid-70s, so most of my growing up was in the 80s, um, and a uh, small community, uh, North Dakota itself isn't exactly a particularly diverse place, so it was, uh, I grew up in sort of a Scandinavian little enclave there, and... Would uh, you mind telling me what town in North Dakota, because I lived in North Dakota for many years, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Maddock, North Dakota. Maddock, is that up north around Williston? Um, it's well, quite a bit further east. It's straight west of Devil's Lake. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. South of Highway 2, but uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Not in the middle, but you can see it from there. Uh, <laughs> actually, speaking of the middle, I was, I was born, well, there's been some debate about this recently, but at, at the time that I was born, I was born in rugby, which at the time was considered the geographical center of North America. Uh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> my, my dad was, wait a minute, rugby is near Williston. Well, it's quite a ways east of Williston, but it's a long highway too. So, Because I have some recollection of my father and rugby and football teams. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, sometimes you have these memories in the back mm -hmm. of your head, and I can't check them anymore because he's been gone for a number of years. But Okay, yeah, so you were born in rugby. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, that, it was the nearest hospital, so it worked out well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I grew up on a farm, and uh, 
I went off to college, went to my first two years of college in Bismarck and mm -hmm. uh, went to junior college there because it was cheap. And then I went to the next two years of college at Concordia in Moorhead, which I went the next two years of college there because it so wasn't. So we have these connections, right? <laughs> because I went to Concordia for one semester in the fall. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I tell you, it'll give away my age. So I won't tell you what year that was. <laughs> It's a beautiful campus. I remember the campus. I ran out of money after one semester. I was, <laughs> okay, here's I was, another connection. I was so stupid that I didn't realize that you needed that much money to go to college. And nobody in my family had gone to college. Mm -hmm. And my parents didn't have money to send me to college. And I had gotten this scholarship in music because of a music award that I got in high school. So I trundle off to Concordia and I get through a semester there and whoop, all the money's gone. And like, what happened? <laughs> so I had to leave. <laughs> well, I ran out of money after, well, it was, it was, it was, it was before I finished my bachelor's degree. So that's when I ran out <laughs> or, or, or looked at the loan bill and freaked out. However you want to, uh -huh. <laughs> however you want to imagine that I stopped going cause I couldn't afford to keep going. But uh, was that a music major? History major. Oh, history. Yeah. Wow. Interestingly enough, I guess for as, for as much time and effort and everything as I've uh, put into music over the years, outside of high school, uh -huh. I never pursued it in college. Outside of, you know, because music winds up splitting off in, in a lot of ways into two paths there. There aren't a ton of people. There are some, depending on where they went to college, um, who go to college for music and then play like sort of in what I'd say sort of like stereotypical rock band context. Mm -hmm. um, they, they tend to either go into music performance, uh, I guess it would be more the equivalent to a fine arts type context or, or not doing it at all outside of school. Mm -hmm. um, you see that a lot. And especially like when I was in, in school, I played saxophone when I was in high school and oh. high in elementary school. Me too. Me too. And, <laughs> <laughs> this is so weird. Why did you play saxophone? Well, I started with clarinet. Oh, okay. After I'd been playing clarinet for about a year, my band director said, hey, I need a saxophone player. Would you switch over to saxophone? So, well, okay, it's a big, heavy thing to drag back and forth from school because we, you know, we, I don't know if we rented it or if the school just loaned it out. But anyway, I'm dragging this thing back and forth all the time. And um, I started with tenor sax. And then after about a year, he said, well, would you switch over to alto? I need an alto. So then I switched to alto. And then by the time I was a senior, he was saying, hey, I need somebody to do the timpani. I need somebody to do the bass viol, you know. So I was doing a lot of different stuff. But, oh, wow. Yeah. That makes it more interesting. I, I played yeah. a saxophone because we had one. Oh. Um, <laughs> started with the alto. And then I think it was my senior year. I switched to tenor because the school had one, but they needed a tenor player, so I did that. So it's kind of kind of kind of the reverse. I think that would have been harder switching from alto to tenor. But. Well, I liked it. Well, the funny thing was, I think I always blame the horn because I, I maintain like I had my uh, uncle's saxophone that he'd gotten from someone else, and you know, I was it's from the early '50s anyway, and I, I, I was I always maintain that that's the loudest alto sax ever made. Oh. <laughs> then other people would say it was just because it was me. Yeah. Or, um, so, you want an alto sax is like Ethel Merman singing, right? <laughs> pretty, much. <laughs> pretty much. So uh, it was it was it was the loudest alto sax in the world. But so then then tenor actually I like tenor uh, 
quite a bit more because you could, you know, you could throw a lot of air at it and it would honk pretty nicely. So that's yeah. The embouchure is so different, though. Yeah, and, um, that's true. It's a much more relaxed embouchure. So um, yeah, and then and like you know, a lot of people, you know, once you're done with school, you you don't play the horn again because yeah. there aren't a whole lot of contexts where you can play the saxophone by yourself unless you're like a a private detective on a rainy day in Chicago in 1948 or something in a black and white film. That's the only other context where you can play a sax by yourself, you know? <laughs> well, but about 20 years after I graduated from high school, I was in some context where I met this guy who sold saxophones and he had a whole living room full of saxophones. And he said, here, pick it up and try it, you know? <laughs> I couldn't get a sound out of it because oh. the, whatever the embouchure is, you, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, it's not like riding a bicycle. It's just no. wrong. <laughs> I uh, sold, actually, I wound up having two saxophones, actually. There was my uncle's and then there was another one because for a while my brother and I wanted playing saxophone at the same time. So the folks picked up another one from a neighbor and I sold it to a coworker. And, you know, I, I got new read on it and stuff and, and, uh, uh, we had the pads changed before I'd stopped playing it. So it had just sat in the case for however long and, you mm. know, gotten that saxophone case stench that they get. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten about that till I opened it. Oh, feet of that, you know, smells oh, You know, I'm a little <laughs> nervous right now because believe it or not, my daughter, um, who is 25, um, just put her saxophone for, up for sale on eBay and the guy's coming this morning in about an hour okay. to look at the saxophone and the case hasn't been opened for hmm, five years at least. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not going to get a chance to tell her to open it before he gets here. So. <laughs> <laughs> it won't, won't be able to air out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. You oh. were playing the saxophone in <laughs> high school, but then what happened? Then in college, you studied history. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, and, and I guess on, on the musical side of things, um, I started playing guitar. Um, I guess it's almost exactly 30 years ago. It'd be 30 years at some point, probably now ish. Mm -hmm. uh, my aunt was up to visit and she brought her guitar because she wasn't playing it anymore and I was interested in playing. So that's how that went. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that probably distracted my attention quite a bit from sax when it was just fun to play. So, um, but anyway, you know, once I was out of high school, I went to college and, and once again, it's a lot easier to kind of take guitar with you and play that by yourself. For one thing, you can mm -hmm. not be so terribly loud as you are with the saxophone always the moment you're making a sound. And, and there's a lot more, there's a lot more you can do with it. Um, and I went to college for history, probably, probably because I was lazy um, and history was easy for me. <laughs> We might have that. We might have that in common too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was, uh, I should have. Well, I kind of wanted to go for mechanical engineering, actually. But that, that I wanted to start in math. Yeah. See, yeah, and then the math. See, I'd gotten the idea in my head that I wasn't any good at math, and the reason I thought I wasn't any good at math was because I wasn't able to just listen to it and know it. I was pretty good with that. I had pretty good comprehension when it came to stuff. Uh -huh. So that's why history was easy for me. So I'd, I'd hear something and remember it and had a pretty good memory. But when it came to doing like uh, homework, uh -huh. it was easy in high school and stuff. Uh -huh. So, you know, I'd, eh, eh, I, I won't really do my daily work. I'll just, you know, kind of phone it in for the test and, and scrape. Well, I think that's one of the big disadvantages of, of having a pretty quick mind is that things come easy to you and then you don't have to work for it and then you don't develop the muscles to work for it. So 
it's a it's kind of a big disadvantage. Oh, absolutely. And then well, and this was the ridiculous. I remember in algebra, <laughs> my algebra teacher saying, and my older brother was exactly the same way on this too. Rather than sitting down and actually learning the dumb formulas and plugging in the numbers, which is actually really easy. And mm -hmm. I remember every time I ever took an algebra class, which was multiple times because I never did that well in them. Um, when I came to it, it was a graphing parabolas. I was, I went from being like, you know, low C's, high D's to tutoring kids for that. And then we'd get out of that and then it would be back, you know, back down. It was like the plane would pop up above the clouds for a while and then back down, you know, crashing to the mountainside. So graphing parabolas was easier for you. Absolutely easy. I didn't even try. It just, it just immediately, I could do it. No idea why. Well, I, I wonder, um, have you heard of Naval Ravikant? No. Oh, you should follow him on Twitter. He's at Naval, N-A-V-A-L. And he is a super interesting guy. <clears throat> he's in finance or something like that. So he's immensely wealthy, but he's also a deep thinker about all kinds of stuff. So okay. anyway, Naval Ravikant was, um, did an interview with Joe Rogan a couple of weeks ago, really fascinating interview, like two and a half hours long. And in that interview, he's talking about um, how if you really want to know a subject that you have to learn it so deeply that you don't learn all the formulas, you just understand the principles so deeply that you could write uh -huh. the formulas yourself. Yes. Yes. And so I'm wondering if there's something fundamental underneath algebra that you understood at a fundamental level that made the parabolas very easy for you, but the formulas were not easy. To tie this into actually last summer, so okay. um, for my work on, on a completely different um, thing, I was uh, doing a certification for project management. So, mm -hmm. and part of that is a bunch of formulas, you know, and you're in a sense, it's not complicated formulas, but um, the standard studying procedure for people is to, uh, um, go through and memorize all these formulas mm -hmm. and then um, they'd start taking the test and then write down you know all the formulas that they'd memorized and then if they came up during the exam because you don't know exactly what's going to come up during the exam it's a four-hour ish test and, uh, and then they'd be able to refer to them and I thought to myself well am I gonna really you know because I'm generally pretty good at memorization too but I'm like I just thought to myself, I'm way better off understanding the principles that make the formula work. Because if I understand the principles that make the formula work, then it doesn't matter if I remember the formula, I can just do it. And that was what I did in algebra all the time anyway, when I didn't remember the formulas, I just used conventional math to solve the problem. So mm -hmm. I, you know, we had to turn our work in and I'd have page upon page of just like arithmetic to solve these, you know, train left the station at 515, you know, <laughs> and I, I wind up with an answer, you know, very often that was correct, but all of the work was wrong. So I had no points for the work. And I remember the teacher saying, just learn the formula. If you learn the formula, you wouldn't have to spend so much time doing all the work on this. <laughs> if you just learned the formula, you'd be okay on that, you know, but it, it was, it was like a, a weird bottom up approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you got the certificate in project management and yeah but somewhere between the degree in history and the certificate in project management you got into music yeah and and you know so music was kind of going all along there and I think when I was in college I had for one thing less uh, distraction um, you know I, I the playing the guitar uh, just the technical elements of it 
I got more and more interested in that as, as school wore on. And when I was in high school, I was involved in basically everything because in a small town, you have to be able to everything yeah. or else you won't have anything, you know. So I was, I was, you know, FFA, FHA, football, chorus, band, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kids today don't have that opportunity anymore. They have to pick one. And yeah. Because, because there's so many kids and because they don't have enough time. And, and it's really sad. Yeah. 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 So, and then, so then on the side, I was, I was doing all of this learning as far as playing the guitar. And then when I went to college, I had more free time really, or maybe I just made more time for it. And, instead of studying the algebra classes that I should have been taking. But uh, you start getting into that. You start getting into the, well, there's the technical nature of playing the instrument, which is one mm -hmm. thing. But then there's the, guitar, <clears throat> kind of like keyboard, although keyboard instruments are better for this, I'd say, probably. Um, and I never really learned how to play a piano very well. I, 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 and this is, I guess, the sort of the self-teaching thing, too. I, I, when my, my older brothers took piano lessons for, I forget how long, but... I took my brother's piano books and I just went through the piano book through, I think, book two or whatever, which isn't very good piano playing, but it's enough to read the music and uh -huh. play, what, buy a wigwam or whatever song they made you play, you know, or the, <laughs> you know, you get both hands by that point, but I'm still lousy at reading bass clap, but, uh, but, uh, so with the guitar. So when, I, when I was 50, I taught myself to play piano, um, just by playing the, uh, playing the bass on the left hand and mm -hmm. then playing the chords on the right hand. And yeah. so I taught myself to play anything that I could <clears throat> find in a guitar book. Yeah. Um, Cause I had played a little bit of guitar and a little bit of um, ukulele and weird stuff like that back in college. So um, it's, it's helpful to have at least that much understanding of the piano. Because mm -hmm. then it, you you start at least thinking about all the the different transitions and the modulations and, yeah. and you can do any of that if you're just working with the chords, yeah. but it's a little bit boring just listening to the bass note on the left hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sorry, sorry I interrupted. Keep going. <laughs> well, the thing about the thing about a keyboard instrument and the guitar can do this to a certain degree, but partially uh, because there are the chords. Um, but you can have a little bit better concept of just sort of a, a music theory approach to it than you'll get on a single note instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I started delving into that because you want to get better at being able to play the instrument. But at the same time, I'm just sort of, you know, coming up with my own things because, I mean, and I started that when I was pretty much, I think I wrote the first song when I played the guitar for two weeks or something. And it wasn't very good. You know, I didn't know it enough to make it very good, but it was something, you know, so that, that always kind of went alongside of it. And so that when, when you're trying to do that, then, then you're trying to think about new things that you can use. And when you're trying to find out new things that you can use, then you want to learn about other stuff. So then, then I started getting into learning more stuff about music theory, um, you know, harmonization, things like that. At the same time, too, I actually had a cousin who was going to school at Concordia. Mm -hmm. um, he actually was a music major, so I'd pick his brain for stuff. So instead of formally getting educated, I just had him filter up the stuff I didn't need to know and then just <laughs> fill me in on the rest. So uh, I did a lot of that. A lot of, I, a lot I've, of heard, I've heard that an actual music major where you have to learn all the theory is one of the toughest, toughest roads you can go down. 
Yeah, it's well, and I think you know part of the difficulty with that too is, I mean, because there's there's theory that's useful on an average level, and then there's a lot of formal, I mean, literally dealing with forms mm-hmm. that if you aren't dealing with those forms, you don't have to know it. Mm-hmm. Um, or even like scoring stuff. I mean, if you aren't, if you know, if you're sitting there studying scoring, okay, well, dealing with a score, well, then you're dealing with instrument ranges and all sorts of things that, you know, if you're working with a piano or, a, you know, a guitar or that sort of thing, you aren't really ever delving into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's like with, well, almost everything, you learn a little bit about, about it and then you learn a bit more. And then once you've learned enough to where you think you know something, you learn just that little bit more and realize you know almost nothing. <laughs> oh, I think I'm getting a good grasp of this. No, I know nothing about this. It's, it's the pits, isn't it? <laughs> I've been I've been trying to explore physics a little bit because I never got physics in college. Yeah. And so you know, for a while I'm trucking along and I'm going, man, I, I think I'm getting a grip on this, and then I fall into some hole, and it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, there is so much. I mean underneath every word there's so much that I can't get there and yeah. and I should have known better because I certainly discovered that with art I mean with art when you just when you really try to learn about just one single thing like color mm-hmm. okay you spend the rest of your life learning about that and you haven't even scratched the surface so um, that's when I got this idea that there's so much information in the universe that the whole entire universe must be composed of information mm-hmm. so <laughs> Well, it's and it's one of those things. You talk about color now. My wife and my oldest brother, they ca- they talk about color on a completely different level than I do. Well, my oldest brother, he um, uh, does antique car restoration, and he has an extremely good eye for color. He's done a lot of paint work and a lot of, and you know, and he's and this is you know, getting into pretty old stuff too. So he's looking at colors, color palettes from the twenties. 30s, teens, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of interesting color use back in those days, too, on cars. My wife uh, went to school for, well, among other things, art. So tons of color stuff. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an idiot when it comes to color related to those two. Like, they're picking up, you know, differences in shades between, and like, I don't know, it looks like purple to me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably find the same thing in music, but <clears throat> in art... Well, in art, the the um, <clears throat> the thing is that the context is everything with the color. Yeah. So, okay, you can have something that looks a little bit purple, but that if you put it next to yellow, oh wow, that's it's really purple now. Or if you if you put it next to red, oh well, maybe it's more blue. So whatever context you set it into changes <clears throat> the color as well. Yeah. Yeah. But but music also has color. Yeah, and and the context thing plays a huge role in that too, and you discover that in a very very strong way as soon as you uh, start trying to blend instruments. And you know there's 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 a reason, for example, orchestral instruments are are uh, tuned, pitched, and have the sonic qualities that they have. And a lot of times when you really kind of think about it, like if you think about a violin played by itself up close, mm-hmm. it can be rough. It can be like if you're right next to a violin and there's nothing, there's, there's no real, you know, a sort of ambient echoing or anything like that. That violin's right in your ear. It's piercing. It's trebly. It's a very harsh sounding thing very often. Wow. 
decontextualize. You, you put it in a, in a different context, or you give yourself a little bit of space, mm-hmm. and then you know the sound can bloom a little bit, and uh, you mix it with other instruments. That well, then you need to have that tonal characteristic for it to jump out. You know, otherwise right. it'll just be buried by everything that's producing these giant bass frequencies that carry yeah. so far and so powerfully. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the context thing I was thinking about. <clears throat> yeah, or, or how do you how do you get a focal point, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So the focal point has to be you have to develop a little jewel case around it so that people notice the focal point. Yeah. And and it's the same in music as it is in art. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and there are a lot of interesting similarities and a lot of interesting differences between you know, like graphic art and music, because you know you can the the, the, the contextualization of things. Well, the, the fact that it's a. And I was kind of debating this in my mind the other day, because um, I think create, and we say creative, and we you know and, and just common use we say create, and we mean to make. Mm-hmm. But then you think you know then I think create versus form. Because when you form something, you take something existence, you know, in existence and you make it into something else. You right. make it into what you want it to be. When you create something, you, and then I was thinking, oh, wait a minute. Do we ever really make something ex nihilo? <laughs> and the answer yeah. that I came to is no. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're using resources that came from somewhere else. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I use the example, I can look around here. I, I, there's a couple of guitars that I built um, and whatever else, like everything, everything was something else. And every musical idea I ever had was something else, or it was generated from something else, or I heard something and it was re-rendered in my mind. But, you know, in the absence of anything else, would I have come up with that? Never. Never. It's a reworking of what exists. But there is this thing, okay, which I, and I hear my husband even using this when they're talking about making something in the tech world. <clears throat> Sorry, my, my got some kind of frog in my throat. Um, there is this thing that we never make anything ex nihilo because we're using resources from somewhere else, but mm-hmm. we can make things. And because of this experiential DNA, because of, and, and this gets to a bigger issue, even that is not of ourselves because we stumbled into all those experiences and <clears throat> we wandered through that landscape, right? But mm-hmm. that landscape made us who we are. And yeah. so then when, when the creative thing comes out of us and we make something, even if it is based on an homage to somebody else or based on things that we've seen or heard from someplace else, when it comes out of us, it really is something that's never been here before. Yeah. That and that is and sometimes it's a very simple thing, but it's something that no one has ever seen before. <clears throat> and and many of these technical tech th- uh, inventions, you know, like an iPhone was never here before. Um, my husband works on chips and routers and things like that and they come up with something it's never been here before. So we're we're continually constructing the universe is continually being constructed. All the ideas and the things are, are constructing out based on this foundational stuff that was poured into us and is flowing out of us. And it's mm-hmm. some kind of stuff of the universe. I don't know. It's really a trippy. <laughs> well, 
and one thing, one thing that I've talked about that kind of intersect with that too, and you talk about uh, with chips, um, and I'm not, I'm no expert when it comes to, uh, well, particularly in, in, in chip making, but I, I've worked with circuits some. And so circuitry, uh, I was thinking about, you think about the, the logic behind circuitry. Um, so you basically have an input, manipulations, and an output, desired output. Okay. And it's not that different from what you have with uh, mechanical things. So a car, you have an input, which is gas, air, and electricity. Output is propulsive power. Okay. Um, uh, my guitar amp that I built over there, that one. Okay, so your input is a teeny tiny electrical signal. Your, big, your output is actual power that can move a speaker. So you have basically the same logic running through an input-output manipulation. You can have any life cycle that people develop for, say, document management. Same basic thing. Um, and I'm thinking about anything with an input and output, we basically follow the same logic over and over again for all sorts of things. So I'm, you know, and, and I'm sure someone has looked into this and studied this and has a beautiful, well-developed theory that's far better than my random ramblings, but, but I haven't found it yet. But I was thinking about that and I was thinking the other one is language. So, because semantics, okay, code, language, code is basically, it's language built off of language. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about how many things we build off of the same basic structure that we use language for. <clears throat> and, and, and so I'm thinking like, well, maybe we have, you know, however many, I have no idea, but however many sort of inborn schemas that we use and apply to all of these different things. But so we have that similar relational aspect to it, but you know, so we don't necessarily sit there and think, well, this is the same. You know, you, you look at your Buick, it's not the same as a, you know, guitar amp, but it's basically the same logic all the way through if you take out the little particulars. Mm hmm Yes. Okay, so that's, that's getting at, that's getting at this thing I've been thinking about, but it's really hard to tease apart, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, my graduate work was in linguistics. Okay. So I have this, um, and not that I remember much about it, but I do remember a lot of the avenues that we went down thinking about, I mean, there's so much to think about in any field, right? But with linguistics, you're thinking not only about the, the, meaning, <clears throat> the meaning of the words, but you're thinking about how people produce sounds and how sounds are perceived by other people and certain um, accents are perceived as being intellectual and some are perceived as being stupid. Yeah. Uh, it's the same brain inside the person, regardless of what their accent is. But, yeah. but <clears throat> on the other side, when people are listening to it, it's a different thing. But um because that was my training, I think a lot about language. And, and the other reason I think about it is that when I was um, going through a tough time in my life, and about the same time my daughter was young, like two years old, and when you have a young child, you don't really use words of more than one syllable. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of got into this space where <clears throat> it was very hard for me to communicate any idea. Yeah. And that's when I started painting. Because, okay. because painting made it possible for me to think through the paint and, and communicate somehow through the paint and then to start to think about 
well, how is it that when I paint something, someone else looks at that painting and they see something coming out of that painting? That's a very weird thing. And, and music is the same way. You, yeah. you, someone writes a song and maybe they didn't have even that much intention in, a, in the song. They just wrote a song. But 50 years later, we're still listening to that song. And when we listen to it, we get emotional reactions and they're tied into our memories and they're tied, tied into our thoughts. And, um, and we get some sort of deep meaning out of that song that that guy probably never intended to begin with. So, so yeah. there's a whole meaning thing as well that, that mm-hmm. just gets connected to all this input and output, which is why I think the pure materialists who are just looking at input and output and that we're some sort of a, a processor, mm-hmm. you know, purely material processor, they're completely missing the point because meaning gets tangled up in all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Since, since you brought up the linguist thing, I'm totally going to pick your brain on this. <laughs> you know, because, because, you know, I would had a laundry list of stuff because, because uh, language is something that is really very interesting to me. And I've been um, kind of pursuing ideas of language and music um, language acquisition and uh, musical learning, because uh, there are a lot of corollaries there um, between language acquisition and music learning. And, and today I was just thinking, because um, in preparation for this, I was thinking about differences and similarities between music and uh, visual arts. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I happened upon the biggest difference that I can think of is that you, music never is illustrated. Music can never directly illustrate anything. Like, otherwise, so? otherwise there, there would be a there would be a song, you know. And I was thinking about this, like, what would be, you know, for example, you can draw something that's very concrete. You can draw a lamp, and everyone will look at that and say that is a lamp. But you cannot play a lamp. You know, well, the closest thing, <laughs> like, if I wrote a song called Pig, and this is my song Pig, you know, that would that would, and people would say that's a horrible song, and they'd be right. Well, so, but, but I do remember sitting, I, I'm not very good with classical music, so I don't remember the name of the song, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do remember sitting in a concert or a symphony or something where, where the, the orchestra was playing a piece and it, it was clear to me listening to it that the composer's intention was to recreate the city. Mm-hmm. So I could hear the city. I could hear the sounds of the city and the the intensity of the city and the rhythms of the city. It was very apparent to me. So, I mean, it was illustrative, at least at that level. Yeah, and in that sense, that's where I think music and language converge in a different way than music and, say, visual arts do. Because whereas visual arts, you can, once again, you can be extremely concrete. I mean, to, well, that's why there's technical drawing, for right. example. Yeah. Um, uh, language is always a level of abstraction from the thing. So you say bird, but bird doesn't inherently contain birdness. Okay, now I'm getting into sort of verbaicisms, but but bird, the word. Have you heard about the bird? Um, no, it's. Uh, but so, <laughs> but the, the word itself is is always you're, you're always a little bit removed from what the thing is. So there's the interpretive element there. Uh, yes, and, and that, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because, yeah. the, and this is a, I mean, sometimes I say things and they sound so cliche, but 
underneath it, there's this thing inside my head that I'm that I can't quite get out. But the word only means as much as you are prepared to understand of it. So um, when I if I show a child a bird, and I say this is a bird, so that's the word you use, bird. Okay, so they can they they have a recognition now. And the next time they see another bird, they say bird. Yeah. They 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 understand that that is a bird. Yeah. But um, by the time that child is ten, now they know the names of all the different kinds of birds, and they can identify particular birds. But then they also understand when they're, by the time they're fifteen, they've had to dissect a bird and and look at the inside of a bird. And and by the time you're thirty, maybe you've had experiences with birds, and they've crapped on your head or. <laughs> You know, or, yeah. or or you had one for a pet and you got to know their personality or whatever. Mm -hmm. By the time you are an old person, the word bird has all these associations wrapped around it. So when you hear bird has a completely different meaning than it did when you were an infant. And every mm -hmm. word is like that. In some words, the basement is so deep, it goes all the way down to the foundations of the universe. So every person's uh, vocabulary set is different than everybody else's what they can know the same set of words but mm -hmm. they've got a completely different understanding of the world yeah one thing I've, I've also thought about lately with with that um, is words as almost sort of containers for meanings and and so I've kind of had this pet idea um, that a word you know because I I, I, I get semi-obsessive about word etymologies and uh, and especially when it's like like if you if you uh, if you know like more than one related language so you know, I, I took I, I took a year in German in college which was horrible um, I was awful at German but uh, I, I I can read Norwegian fairly well I can speak it I can understand it depends who I'm talking to you know but there's a lot of corollaries there because you know Norwegian and English are pretty close to related languages but you'll have a word, or even actually Norwegian and Danish, which I can read both of them. Um, but one word will have a slightly different meaning from the other one because there's 200 years of interpretive difference between there. Yes. Uh -huh. But then I kind of wonder sometimes, when you have these words that come from a common root, to what extent that common meaning that was once held still kind of carries with that. Like it's a continuous uh -huh. meaning coming up from beneath, from yes. past coming forward. Uh -huh. Um, and, and one thing that made me think about that was the Jordan Peterson believe thing, because believe comes from what I think is middle English, uh, believe which comes from the same root of, I think, proto-Germanic root as, uh, gelaufe or glaube, which is the German glaube, which means believe. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the inference there isn't just to propositionally hold or to have accepted a proposition, which is the way we largely interpret it now. Like I believe like, well, I agree with that proposition mm -hmm. um, but it has much more to do with value and trust in the older definition and i yeah. think when you and if you, if you go back to the way it's used in the scripture um when that word believe is used mm -hmm. especially like i think in first timothy because i got i got into the etymology of that too and i started looking okay. at greek interlinear and mm -hmm. when the word believe is used in that context it's actually the meaning is more there's a more depth of a persuade persuaded i am persuaded right mm -hmm. and yeah 
And you have to be persuaded of things in order to trust. Yeah. Like you get on an airplane, you're persuaded that that airplane is going to get you where, mm-hmm. you're gonna, where you want to go. Yeah. So, or this guy that walks across the tight wire from one side of the, you know, <laughs> he, he's persuaded that he's going to get there. And yeah. he, has a, he has a trust that that wire is not going to break. He's, 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 putting, he's putting his weight on it. Yeah. Right? That's, the, that's the meaning behind believe when it's used in that context. Yeah, and, and I think it, it carried forward, and I don't know, I should know, because I probably watched that in a video from John Gavicki last week or something, but <laughs> when that started to change in the way that we popularly think of the word, because a lot of people just, you know, in, in, in common parlance, believe is to accept the proposition of something. Um, now I can, I can say just, as recently, certainly as the 16th century, uh, Martin Luther, uh, in his intro to the Book of Romans, does a huge thing about belief because, of course, that's where you know he translated Romans. So he uh, he uh, had a whole thing about faith and what is faith? What does faith mean? And and there's a whole thing in there about faith isn't just to accept a proposition of a thing. He doesn't say that, um, but it's faith naturally works itself out into works which is something that a huge portion of people lose when they're reading anything of Luther talking about faith is that that was his definition for faith. So faith naturally, you know, works itself out in the form of works. If there are no works, then there isn't actual faith. Right. It may be acceptance of the proposition, but it, that isn't faith. It's a different thing. So, well, so that ties back into, um, and I never thought about this before. You know how Jordan Peterson talks about truth. Mm-hmm. That the way that you know something is true is that, um, well, let me back up a little bit, that you know what a person believes based on their actions, not on what they say. Mm-hmm. That when you watch how, so he said people, most people don't know what they believe. Yeah. They think they believe something, but they don't really believe what they think they believe. <laughs> they don't act on it. So you look at their actions, and when you look at their actions, you can determine actually what they believe. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's, that's the same idea, right? That, yeah. that we might think we have faith, but if it's not working itself out in our lives and we're not, um, not adopting the actions of a faithful person or not living out what a faithful person is supposed to be living out, then we don't really believe it. There's something missing in our, in our propositional, you know, framework. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, and well, by their fruits, you should know them. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's explicitly stated and yet. But we don't usually wind it backwards that way. Right. No, no. And that and really I, helped me because I, I'm not a philosopher and I've never thought, deeply about any of these things <laughs> but, but then I was like I made a discovery of like three years ago about myself it's really bad when you make a discovery that late in life because <laughs> um, I had always struggled with uh, weight and overeating and uh, I was especially addicted to sugar ah. and but um, in my in my thinking, I'm fairly conservative in the way that I look at the world. I believe in personal responsibility and accountability and all of those things. 
Yeah. And all of a sudden, I came to this realization, even before I ran into Jordan Peterson, <clears throat> I have a certain set of values that I impose on the world that I would hope that we could all live up to, but I'm not living according to my values. Yeah. Because my values say, I say I believe in personal responsibility, but I'm not taking responsibility for my body. And that hit me at such a deep level that it completely transformed the way that I thought about things and it changed the way that I live. Because, because now I, I had this different framework. You were like, persuaded. I was persuaded. <laughs> I, I need to live according to my value. And if my value is that we should all be taking care of ourselves, then I need to take care of myself. I'm not, um, I'm not immune to the rules. I'm not immune to the consequences, but somehow I had lived my whole life with this vague fantasy that I was somehow immune to consequences. That mm -hmm. I, you know, yeah, other people ought to live by that, but, you yeah. know, that's for them, that's not for <laughs> me. <laughs> well, and, and this is one of those, one of those weird things, like, I realized at one point, uh, um, yeah, you know, I was I was I was writing lyrics for for songs for a band I was in however many years ago, and uh, and there was a fairly accusatory tone to this tune. And it's like you know because you're trying to do it. I'd always do music first and then lyrics later. This is you know relatively heavy music, so it's got to be yeah whatever, you know something that fits along with it. And I realized this is is basically uh, writing this song. Um, about uh, having a negative attitude about life. And it's actually, I mean, the whole point of the song is you should not have such a negative attitude about life. And, and there's a guy I used to work with, and he just, like, he could just, like, he would find, like, the worst in everything, always, you know? And it's like, oh, yeah, it's irritating. And I wrote the song, you know? It's like, yeah, this guy, that's ah, tiring. So I wrote the song about him. Then I read the lyrics, and I'm like, oh, crap, that's about me. <laughs> Yeah, that's my inner monologue, you know, and that's why, and I realize that 90% of what irritates me about other people are things that I know are my own flaws. That's, you know? that's the key to the universe right there. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, why do you know so much? Oh, wait, that's me too, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. And so, uh, no, but it was, I smoked for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 20 years yeah whatever so and I quit smoking and, 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 and in that period you know weight wise you know a similar sort of thing you know I'd, you know, I'd go up I'd go down whatever I quit smoking and then that was just like you know to the moon yeah you know? and uh, and uh, I was like you know, Shamu and uh, <laughs> it's like look at you know I'd look in the mirror and it was just the mirror was just lies it's just like you would filter it back to him, like, no, oh, it's not so bad. And then if I'd see a photograph, I'm like, you know. <laughs> just oh, I used, I used to really avoid mirrors and photographs. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you're like supermarket. You know, walk, through, walk through the grocery store, and, uh, you know, they have the mirrors behind the vegetables. And then I'd see this this dude, and they're like, who's this guy? And, oh, wait, that's me. Who? You know. And, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, then, then a similar sort of thing. I, I had to put myself, like, okay. How much are you eating, Trav? How much are you eating? You know, how much beer are you drinking, Trav? How much? And that was that was that was probably the sugar for me was that because mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I ultimately ultimately uh, quit that altogether because it's like once again, well, 
you know, what's good for them is good for you. Yeah. <laughs> not that yeah. I'm not. Well, not that also, I'm, I think there's something about, <clears throat> <clears throat> I really apologize for this. <clears throat> there's something about addiction that you don't recognize is affecting you until you stop. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, once I stopped, it, everything inside of me started to fit together in a different way. Yeah. And I started to see every day differently and I was more at peace and completely changed the way I approach my artwork. And I mean, but I, I couldn't see that at all before yeah. it had changed the way that I interact with people because I used to be much more demanding of people and have expectations. And who was I to have expectations? You know, I mean, what, what's that all about? But the addiction is kind of almost like a, it's like a spirit that convinces you that you are special. You are invincible. Oh, it's um, the uh, Paul Vanderclay and John Peugeot um, had talked about this one. And I think, uh, Paul had mentioned it in um, one of his most recent ones. I think uh, the one you've done with the gal from uh, Quality Life or Quality Existence. Um, oh, I just was watching that yesterday, but I didn't see the whole thing. Okay, well, they get to the end. They start talking about um, the, the the question of, of patterns of behavior and then the idea, you know, demonic, angelic, and what uh, patterns ah, okay. they uh -huh. and and the addiction part of things. And I remember commenting on the, the Peugeot Vanderclay video because. That is exactly how that played out in, well, for example, like smoking. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's 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 just it's just this aspect of yourself that exempts you from either from consequences or exempts you from caring. It's this, and maybe it's just this little apathetic self that lives mm -hmm. there and says, "Oh no, just give me what I want. You don't worry about that. Just give me what I want. You don't worry about that." <laughs> oh yeah, it's so. And, just, yeah. just scratch this little leg. No, you don't worry about that. Don't worry about that later. You yeah, know? it's like screw tape letters, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, and this is, you know, and, and I don't know if this is this falls into addiction or just obsessive behavior because they're pretty close. Um, okay, so I'd mentioned like 30 years um, since I had started playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until um, end of April I took my first break. Like, of, of a significant period of time. Like I maybe had a week where I didn't play here or there over 30 years. And when I first started, it was, oh, well, it's just, you're learning and it's fun to do. And I was in high school, it didn't matter. When I was in college, it was like, what was the, you know, getting better, learning more, that sort of thing. And then that proceeded, okay, gets into projects. Well, then you're playing in a band and you're working on that stuff. And you always, and from that point on, I was always working on something. If it wasn't you know, if it wasn't a band, it was a recording project. It was this, that, it was that. And you're always working on something. And then I was giving guitar lessons and then I was doing repairs. And so I was very much, you know, in that world. Mm -hmm. I never took a break. Bands would break up and it's like, you know, there's, that's a whole thing in and of itself. I mean, you want to learn about people management, have bands. Um, <laughs> you know, and like bands break up and, and no break, no break, no break. And, and one day I was playing and... I got done playing the guitar with the guitar up and went and I don't know, went to the grocery store or something. And like, I was, I was getting in a worse mood. Just like, eh, just not happy. 
Like, well, why am I getting in a worse mood? What, how is it that I just, you know, that used to put me in a good mood. It used to make me happy. And then I realized that I was playing out of some sort of just obsessive need to do that in order to maintain a semblance of an identity related to being a musician. Oh my God. Did this have any connection to when you stopped drinking beer and changed your eating habits? Um, a couple of years, a couple of years gap in that. Because, um, because what happened to me is when I stopped, I just, um, for a while, it was hard to pick up the paintbrush again for a number of reasons, time and whatnot. But then after a while, it was just like, I don't have the impulse right now to mm. paint. Mm. I don't have the impulse. And so I actually stopped painting for a year after painting nonstop for 20 years and being obsessed with it for 20 years, just stop. And, and then I felt very peaceful about not painting. And I thought, well, what's that all about? Yeah. And that's when I had to think, you know, is there anything still there? Do I still want to do this? And so yeah. then I kind of rethought things and went back at it from a different perspective. But I kind of thought that the reason, when I thought it through, I thought maybe the reason that I stopped was that the reason I had been painting before was because of this obsessive need to have some sort of an identity or a role that identified me as a valuable human being because the addiction had gripped me at some deep level that I wasn't conscious of telling me that I was a flawed human being who couldn't be in control in that area and therefore and and something about me understood that other people i think there was a fear that other people weren't accepting me for who i am mm -hmm. so i had to give them some sort of persona to look at here yeah. here i'm an artist here see mm -hmm. i've got i've got something to offer yeah but, but underneath there was this big boatload of fear and anxiety and then after I got out of the addiction when I saw the world a different way it's like well am I really an artist I better explore that and find out right so then I went back and, oh yeah it's well, still there but it's a different thing now right mm -hmm. well, and, and I think that's one of those things too I think for me it had come from um, okay so I have there and this was this was previous band um is a recording that we should have finished years and years ago and, and really all this left are um to, to finish it really are a few guitar solos and some vocals and that's all that's left and that's all that's been left for about two years uh -huh. um i had started that long before i ever did echoes in the dark or before i'd really started recording that in earnest like i had ideas mm -hmm. and stuff like that for it um but then you know so the solo project just completely passed it you know the band broke up um, but I still wanted to get the stuff and you want to have the material done. And, and, and that I think is, is another one of those things that I actually, uh, back in the late nineties, I had, uh, what I called the, the lost album where basically, um, an album's worth of material I recorded with the guy and it just gone, utterly gone. And that was just like, I have almost nothing left of that. And so I, I think I had some sort of, some level of programmed fear off of that too. It's just like, yeah. you know, but, uh, so I, you know, I'd, I'd had this idea, and so I'm constantly stringing myself along on these projects. And uh, okay, so I'd gotten done with uh, uh, Echoes in the Dark, and I was not that utterly committed to the band, you know, project at that point. And I was used to it not being done. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I was just sitting there and, and, and I'd go to write something new and I'd, I'd start on something. It's like, well, that's a bit of, that's a bit okay. I didn't really had, have a good strong drive to come up with something that I thought was fresh. Mm-hmm. And so I start with something and say, like, oh, that's kind of like something I've done before. It's like, I suppose really, I mean, I've, I don't know, I probably have, well, when the band thing is done, it'll be like three hours of publicly available music, which is a fair bit of music if you play it continuously and it's all me. Um, <laughs> but, and I'm like, okay, so am I going to have a fresh idea at this point? Mm-hmm. And then, and, and that's a, you know, and that was, you know, I used to be ridiculously prolific and that started drying up. And at the same time, I don't think I could, you know, turn off the logical side of my brain when it came to listening to music either. So I couldn't actually really listen to music without analyzing it because you get so used to listening. Okay, well, I'm going to listen to this. Well, maybe, maybe we'll play this. Maybe, maybe I'll listen to play this in the band. Well, maybe I'll use this idea for writing. Maybe I'll use, like, it doesn't even matter what you're listening to. It's like you're constantly mining for ideas and you can't actually enjoy anything. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I get that. And it's like, you know, and you're just sitting there just like, oh, just shut up, brain. <laughs> and so and that was a part of it too so that was a part of it i actually forced myself to just okay you're hanging up the instrument and you're going to listen to x amount of music and you're not going to think about what you're listening to you're just going to enjoy it for what it is and it might be something that's a little out of what you've typically done or whatever maybe you'll go back to stuff that you loved you know when you were in high school or whatever else but you're going to do that and you're going to you're going to learn a to listen again without analyzing Mm-hmm. You learn to enjoy this, and you're going to try and make this fresh again because it was utterly stale. And looking back now, I'm like, yeah, that was completely stale, and I'd and I'd been dragging that I'd been dragging that along for probably years. <laughs> Without, I mean, looking back, I should have taken a break at however many different intervals along the line, and never did. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you, you just you just like just digging through burnout, you know. <laughs> So, so what you did was you started to let the music speak to you. Um, yeah. At, at a more personal level rather than just an analytical level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually had to force myself not to think about what key things were in. I mean, it was, I mean, it's, it's that, it's like, especially, I mean, you listen to something and just like, it starts, okay, well, that's an A. All right. And, and, and then, you know, then the ponies are running and then you have no chance of getting back out of that. Uh-huh. You know? So it's yeah. like you just have to shut up that little voice in your brain that's sitting there just running analysis on everything and just just, just listen. Just shut up and listen, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe how much synchronicity there is between us. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you, you talked about Norwegian. Is that because you're family is Norwegian? Yeah, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. My Norwegian dad, is Swedish. It's the melting pot of North Dakota. My it's, father was Swedish and my mother was Norwegian. There you go. <laughs> and and <laughs> they, they, uh, I mean, my, I'm sorry, my father's, my father's father was Swedish and his mother was Norwegian. Okay. My mother's side, um, was a much more mixed bag, German and English, okay. and French and Scotch, Irish and stuff like that. But, but on my father's side, the the uh, North Dakota side, it was all Swedish and Norwegian. Yeah. And I understand they don't get along very well together. The yeah, Swedes and the Norwegians. My, my, <laughs> I grew up, the township I grew up, uh, my friend calls it the Swedish reservation. Um, it was, it was <laughs> kind of a, an example for the community. 
a Swedish reservation is a place that's only 60% Norwegian, 40% Swedish. Like, <laughs> the other places around were more Norwegian than that. So uh, <laughs> my dad's folks were, uh, my, uh, my, my grandpa was uh, Norwegian and, and my grandma was Swedish, you know, by descent, they went from there directly, but. Well, but, see, that's, isn't it just weird? It's almost like we're, you know, cousins from another mother or something. Well, it's like oh, there's yeah, so my, many connections. My dad has talked about it, like growing up in the middle of the Scandinavian Cold War, you know, because my grandpa would start talking, speaking Norwegian to the uh, hired men, you know, around supper, and, and then grandma just couldn't stand it. Just just drove her nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, see, my my grandmother and grandfather ended up divorcing when the, they had three boys, and when the boys were in their teens, they ended mm -hmm. up divorcing because they just they just couldn't make it together. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you've mentioned for Vakey and Paul Vanderclay and and Jordan Peterson and all that, and I'm trying to remember how you and I connected so that I even got your information for this interview. Do you remember? I'm. I think it was in a comment section off of one of Paul Vanderclay's videos. Okay. I'm guessing so. I'm or what did you, maybe you commented on the interview that he did with me. Oh, probably. Yeah. Probably. And then yeah. we, then we got connected there. Yeah. Well, Travis, would you like to tell folks about your, uh, your music, your website? Do you have any information about that? Or do you want I me to just a, put I it have a website. Or do you want me to just put it in the comment section? You can put it in the comment section. Um, actually, you know, Here's the thing. I'm the only person on earth with my name on the planet. If you so Google my name you on Twitter, and you can find me on everything. Okay, well, so no, you can't find me on everything, but you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on uh, uh, Facebook. I have a music page on Facebook. Uh, CD Baby, if, if anyone wants to listen to the music and pay for it, so I make what they call money. Uh -huh. uh, music business, there isn't a whole lot of that left anymore. Um, there's a CD Baby. Um, I, can, I can send you the link for that. Because um, that's sure, and I I can put all this, I can put all this in the in the uh, what do they call it the information section? Okay, okay, and then Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, uh, uh, music on there and stuff too. So, so tell us your name. I I just called you Travis, so they need to know your last name too if they're going to Google you. My last name is Woyen, W O Y E N. That is. Some screwed up Norwegian is what that is, to the extent that people from Norway go, what kind of name is that? Um, so do you think we can talk again, Travis? Oh, I think so. I think it'd be fun. I think we probably hit the tip of the iceberg on that because. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Because I still want to get back to uh, what you're thinking about when you do your music. So. Yeah. And there was the matter of the blank page in silence, too. Oh, and my I, gosh. I, remember yes. I, I made that. I made that. I made a comment on. Uh, um, uh, uh, Sally, the, the video did with Sally, and then I, uh, yeah, just so I remember, and I just finally remembered. So, <laughs> and I actually made a note for myself that we would talk about it. Um, well, while we're still thinking about it, let's talk about that right now because we, we're only at an hour, so I think oh. we're doing good. Um, <laughs> it, it was in connection to this idea of stochastic resonance. Oh, yeah, I'm That's gonna, I'm just gonna lay a little groundwork here for folks that. On the interview that I did with Alex, um, he's a geophysicist and he understands all about wave theory and all this stuff. And he said there is this, this thing that happens when there's a signal, it might be a 
you know, a recording, some sort of a signal that, that isn't quite perceivable for some reason. Mm-hmm. And he likened it to also maybe like thinking about our subconscious. Maybe something is at just below our consciousness, so we can't quite access it. Um, but anyway, when it's an actual radio signal, that mm-hmm. if they interfere with that signal with white noise, I think I'm explaining this correctly, yeah. that the white noise will actually create a resonance. It has to be some sort of randomness, which is why they use white noise. That's the sto- stochastic part of it, the randomness. Okay. So the, the randomness will interact with the signal yeah. and boost the amplitude just enough to where you can hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, that really resonated with me because when in my artwork, when I don't have enough information to find the image that I'm trying to create on the page, I introduce chaos. I introduce randomness. I add a lot of just randomly applied paint or texture or whatever to the canvas so that I get some more information to boost the signal for me. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to explain this to Sally on the interview that I did with her. And she said she sees the world quite differently because to her, she doesn't want to introduce randomness or chaos. She wants silence to boost the signal. Mm -hmm. Oh, then you had a comment about that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and, and having grown up in an extremely quiet place, um, although I'm trying to think, I'm kind of ballparking where in Western South Dakota, I think she's from, but uh, I'm really probably not anywhere close, but I'm trying to think about how windy it is there. Uh, The reason being that uh, if you grew up on a farm in North Dakota, it's windy. Yeah. Always. You always have the wind. So so actually white noise is a, is a, fair comparison to the average and I'm thinking noise floor so when you think about the noise floor the basic level of noise that you have in your life so even if it's really quiet and I remember you know a lot of times in the summertime I'd be sitting there I'd be out in the yard and I'd hear the cows and the cows were a mile and a half away in the pasture north of us and you'd mm-hmm. hear cows and you know maybe there'd be a north wind because there's always a north wind um blame blame the Canadians for that but uh you know and you so you hear the cows well yeah, and then it's not like they're screaming, you know, but they're just out there being cows and you can hear them, you know, or you'd hear stuff from however far away because the noise floor was pretty low, but it's still there. Um, I think the thing with, with, uh, with white noise, uh, and that signal in particular, is that white noise will probably tend to boost that signal just because there's going to be a certain amount of frequency overlap between the noise and the signal itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it maybe then gets to be when you introduce chaos, particularly when you have a blank page, um, then you have something to, to work back from. Because I think I made the comment that uh, blankness is infinite. Um, when there's- That's exactly right. You made that comment about um, that when, when, you're, when you're facing nothing, you're actually facing infinity. And yeah. I thought, oh, that is so absolutely true. Because what happens it's like every moment before you make the next move, whatever the next move is going to be, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this. You have in front of you a field of infinite potential. Yeah. You could go any direction, any direction. Now there are only certain directions that are going to be profitable or functional, but you could go any direction. So 
a blank sheet is like that. It's a field of infinite potential. Where do I even start? Yeah. And, and I don't know if you've read Art and Fear. No. I think you'd like that book. It's, yeah. uh, it's only about 50 pages long. And it's, it, and I made a mistake earlier when I was comparing art and music because music is art. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I, I appreciated the fact that you came in and said graphic arts and music because then it, that's up, you know, yeah, these are two, two functions of art. Mm-hmm. But um, he's talking about music and painting and all of that. But, but in one example, he talks about painting specifically, and I understand this at a very deep level, that before you start the painting, you have an image in your mind that is so perfect. <laughs> and then you lay down one stroke. Uh-huh. Now you've limited yeah. where it can go. And the next stroke limits it even more and every stroke after that. So you're continually limiting where you're going to end up. And you're never going to end up where that vision was in the beginning, mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. And part of that reason is that maybe I don't have the skill to produce that vision. But then that's what being an artist is. You think, oh, I don't have that skill. I'm going to follow that and go get that skill so I can make this vision. And then yeah. later on, I have this whole set of new skills. Okay, I can make that vision, but that vision is 10 years old now. <laughs> I have a new vision. And, yeah. and so your vision is always out ahead of your skill, always. And you're never going to create the image you thought you were going to create. But, but that also makes me think about what you said about nothing or the blank page is actually everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted you to connect that with, uh, with the white noise thing and the silence. Yeah. And well, and, and I think a certain amount, even so even silence isn't truly well, there's an anechoic chamber, I believe it's at the university of Minnesota and, and yeah. it's anechoic. So it, it has zero reverberation. And uh, so if you sit in this chamber, apparently you can hear, you, know, you hear your heartbeat, you hear your blood rushing, you hear all these things because you hear zero exterior, external noise to yourself. Wow. And, I, and, it, and I've forgotten the details, but you can only be in there so long before you start having problems because that's what you're hearing. You're, hearing, you're getting no sensory input externally, really. And yeah, then they generally have to put you out of there. Or you just get out of there because people can't stand being in there. Um, so we're used to a certain level of a noise threshold and, and, uh, uh, what, uh, Sally had mentioned and, and I do identify with this when the, when the, with, when the noise floor is really high for an extended period of time. Um, yeah, that, that can get very, very bothersome where there's a lot of noise and a lot of noises and it's very tiring. But then I think otherwise, or in other situations, if you have, like, if you have just like a little bit of an idea, even you know, sometimes you're creating your own noise is kind of like what you're talking about with that. If you have just a nugget of an idea, you might flesh out some element of it. And I think that's what rough drafting is really kind of doing. Rough drafting is almost like the white noise of it. Because most of the time, if you do a rough draft of anything, you you put it down, you come back to it and go, well, then most of that's crap, but I like that bit. Yeah. 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 Uh Um, That's exactly. That's, (laughs) and that's, that's me. That's with, with literally anything. And I think, Part of it too gets to be developing the filter so you can pick out what, you know, pick out the gold from the dross, I guess, or what have you. Um, you know, so it's like, 
So that yeah. gets back to when Jordan Peterson is talking about how to be an effective writer and what he teaches his students is do a crappy rough draft. Oh yeah. They're, they're worried about not being able to write well. And so they're, they're fearful of the white page, but he says, just write some crap, just throw out yeah. whatever crap you can come up with. Just do a crappy rough draft. And, yeah. and then you go back and you can look through it and you've got something to look at. But, but that's the way it is with life. None of us, my husband was telling my daughter the other day, because she's starting her career mm-hmm. Monday, <laughs> her, yeah, her first job of her new career. And he said, um, don't be afraid when you're in, in committee meetings or whatever to offer to do something, even if you don't know how to do it. Because the yeah. truth is, nobody knows how to do these things. Yeah. Everybody just has to say, I'll take charge of that. And then you go and you figure it out. And that's the way the world is constructed. That's the way we move forward. We yeah. all figure it out as we go. And, and, and I think one of the big problems with the world today is that everybody thinks they already need to have it figured out before they can move forward, right? Yeah. Well, one thing, and this is, this is a tool that needs to be used judiciously, but I've found probably more helpful in uh, the corporate world than anywhere else uh, with work. And this is my, my uh, boss and my cohorts and whomever are, are used to this approach for me. When people don't know what to do, when you don't know what to do, you have a problem that you need to fix, you need to come up with a solution for something. If you can identify the problem the, and, and no one's coming up with a good solution, I always go for, well, what's the worst thing we could do? What's like the worst thing you could possibly do? Like, okay, you know, we have a problem. We have customers coming in and they're losing money, you know, in, 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 in the pot machine, for example. What, what, what's the worst thing that we could do? Well, we could, you know, have someone jump out and rob them and take the rest of the money. Um, okay, well, what's the opposite of that? Once you go to the opposite of that, you know, then you can start getting into some actual solutions that might be worthwhile to do. Because people can usually figure out the opposite of the thing, you know. And then, then once you can start doing that, it's just sort of a creative thinking thing where you can go, okay, well, that's a horrible idea. What's a way better thing to do that's the opposite? Okay, well, what's something that we can actually do that's the opposite? Okay, well, you know, maybe we refund the money. Uh, whatever it is. The pot machine is a bad analogy, but... Uh, <laughs> well, when, you're, when you're saying that, I'm hearing all these old lectures of Jordan Peterson's when he's talking about, you know, okay, so I know I'm a loser and, and, and I know I, you know, everything I'm doing is crappy. And, you know, he goes down that road of kind of painting the, the typical prototypical mm-hmm. loser. And he says, but, you know, is there one thing, is there one thing that I would do if I could do it? <laughs> you know, can I find even one thing that's the opposite of that? Just one little thing. Yeah. And that's where he gets to the clean your room, you know, but yeah. it sounds exactly like what you're saying. You know, you have this, you're, you, you're finding the worst possible. He's drawing the worst picture he can draw of people. Yeah. In order to get back to this one little thing that you can do. And, yeah. and I think a lot of people get put off by that because, hey, don't throw me in the pool with all those <laughs> other losers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting too how afraid people are of failure. And, and failure yeah. are things that don't matter. Like, okay, yeah. for example, I'll use the example of uh, building guitar. So I built, you know, some guitars anyway, right? And, and uh, you know, people will say, well, I could never do that. Really? Like, yeah, you're right. You couldn't because you don't think you can. So you're never going to try. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the worst thing that would happen? If that's something you've always wanted to do, what's the worst thing that can happen if you try? Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, what, what, so what are you out then? 
you ruined a stick. <laughs> what you, and what you, you spent a couple hundred bucks and you made some firewood. That's the big risk. Or is it just the sense that you weren't able to do it, which you already believe. And we psych ourselves out on tons and tons of things like, yep. and, and, and maybe it's, 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 you know, people who may be coming from situations where you can't always get what you want. So you have to figure out some way to finagle it. You know, you, you, you kind of get immune to some of that. Like, well, I'll try it. If it's just junk, it's junk and whatever. Um, <laughs> sort of like farmer mechanics. Um, <laughs> I think what's underneath that is for me is, um, and I think you were getting at that is this idea of, I, you know, I'm kind of making excuses for myself. I'm not aware that that's what I'm doing. I remember back, like, I don't know, I used to paint watercolor many, many, many years ago. And um, I finally stopped painting watercolor because watercolor allows for a lot of happy accidents that just mm -hmm. sort of turn into things on their own. And, yeah. and there was a point at which I started to feel like, well, I'm never going to find out if I really can paint if I'm relying on all these happy accidents. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some extremely wonderful watercolor artists, because there are. And probably the reason I stopped painting watercolor is that I didn't want to put in the discipline of what it requires to become a really excellent watercolor painter. So mm. I, no, this is not a diss on watercolor. But, yeah. but with watercolor, every painting is done on paper, yeah. or, or usually. Yeah. And the paper is kind of expensive. It's like $10 for a sheet of good watercolor paper. And I remember walking through a little art festival one time with my daughter and son-in-law. And I saw this beautiful picture of a very, uh, very strong value contrast, old white house with the, in a beautiful dark shady nook. And there was a flag on the front porch. And so the light was just gleaming on this front porch. And the contrast was stark because the background was so dark. Uh -huh. So I made this comment and I said, wow, I wish I could paint like that. And my son-in-law said, well, why can't you? And I said, well, it's really difficult to get that level of dark with watercolor. And he said, well, why can't you? And I said, well, I'm, a, I'm afraid to waste a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> And, and he said, look, he said, I'll buy you 10 sheets of paper go after it, you know? Yeah. And, and then I thought, you know, if he hadn't asked me all those questions, I wouldn't have gotten to what the fundamental problem was. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought the fundamental problem was that I was afraid to waste the money on the paper, but really underneath all that was, I was afraid to try to see if I could do it in the same way that you're talking about with these, these people who are afraid to build a guitar or they're not even they're not even at the point where they're afraid to build a guitar they're just saying i could never do that yeah you know um when i years ago i used to teach art to little children and the children i if i would draw something they'd say oh i could never do that and <laughs> and i'd say well um when did you when you first wrote your name what did it look like and they're like Five, they can still remember when the teacher taught them how to write their name, right? Oh, it was really bad. And I said, well, how does it look now when you write your name? Oh, it's a lot better. 
<laughs> so how many times have you written your name since you wrote it the first time? Well, every day we have to write our name many times every day. <laughs> well, that's the way it is to build any skill. You have to do it and do it and do it and not be afraid that it's not going to look good the first time, right? Yeah. Because it never looks good the first time. Well, talking about writing the name, that, that's actually one of those things. I, uh, I'm, I'm apparently the last remaining person in North America who still writes in cursive. Uh, or something like that, and and I and people are like, wow, you know, and, and and I have to warm up into it, and I and this is one of those funny things. I have no endurance for writing. I don't know that anyone does because I don't write anywhere near enough, right? Mm -hmm. But it's it's okay. It's like it's okay cursive. I don't have a beautiful script, but it's okay. But almost no one writes in cursive anymore, generally. And I started doing that because I looked at something I'd written, and this was I don't know, I was probably in my early twenties. I've looked at something I've written and I'm like, you're an adult. This looks like it was written by an apathetic 12 year old. Just some horrible hybrid print thing. Like, do I really want to go the rest of my life <laughs> looking like I'm writing like a, an apathetic 12 year old? You know, this is, this is before computers took over everything, whatever yeah. else. You know? So I sat down there with a notebook and I don't know, came up with sort of a hybrid Palmer method <laughs> to actually writing. And uh, like, I know it's one of those things you have to develop the muscle memory and, and muscle memory has gotten to be a pretty common term, but I think you can apply it to a lot of things that don't involve muscle, but it's like the ability to do a thing without thinking it through and just do it to just execute whatever task. Just well, based on. So my daughter went to a little private school in elementary school and the, the rector or the head of the school um, had he was 94 at the time, amazing man. And he had started this school when he was in his 50s. And he had a lot of theories. And one of his theories was that you have to teach children cursive from when they first start. You don't teach them to print to start with, you teach them cursive to start with. Yeah. And, and his theory was that it actually wires your brain differently. You think differently when you're writing cursive. So I went out and did a little research on it, and that's exactly what the research shows. I think and so right. somehow we're changing the way that our children's brains are wired when we don't teach them cursive, because mm -hmm. if every letter is discrete and separate, yeah. then you're not making the connections as you write and as you think, right? Yeah. That's interesting. I'd like to, I should look into that again. Is that uh, it makes sense. I mean, all these, these things, I mean, people are complicated, man. Mm -hmm. But all of these, these things that feedback, we don't even know really. I mean, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I, when I happened upon um, a technique that involved, for like getting, getting a song under my fingers, you're getting a, a really difficult thing under my fingers um, on the guitar. So, and you sit there with the metronome and you're sitting there working it up to speed and working it up to speed. And so you want to keep it on exact tempo and you want to get it as fast as you can to as close as you can to the actual speed that's supposed to be played. And, you know, sometimes you're short of that. You know, a lot of times you're short of that. That's why you're working on it. And uh, I came to the realization that I could work on it up to about a eh, 25 minutes to a half hour at which point I would start losing speed or losing accuracy at speed, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with the, where I would, I would practice 
that particular thing before bed. And I would work up to a 20 minute point. I would push past the speed that I could go um, just a couple of times and where it was, it was kind of played kind of sloppy. And then it stopped and then I'd go to bed. And then the next evening, I could pick up probably 10 beats per minute faster than I had the day before. Wow. And the reason being that when you sleep, your brain is able to, you know, basically condense all the information, mm -hmm. all of the movements and all of the things into a smaller package. So that basically you can execute that stuff. It's not because your fingers can't move quickly enough. No, it's, it's like it zips. It zips it. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. Yeah, so it's, and you can't hear it quickly enough. If you can't hear it, you can't play it. Like if you can't mentally work out the notes, you can't play it. Mm -hmm. You know, until you get to a certain point, and then once you've got that information, just packaged just so, then you can rifle it right off. But you need to give your brain a chance to do that, and it does that when you're sleeping. Same thing with memorization, actually. When you're memorizing, memorizing, you know, something that's you know inordinately long. You know, you work from the beginning and you go down through, and you get to where you can't absorb anymore, and then you go to bed. Mm -hmm. And the next day, you remember a good portion of where it was, and, and, and you can just kind of pick up where you left off. It's amazing how much that works. So, I don't know how much longer people can tolerate to listen to this. <laughs> how many bells and whistles are going on? <laughs> so on, on the little black box thing about learning, um, I remember so many years ago, I was getting ready to go overseas, and um, I, I was in a six week program to teach us how to learn a language from a language informant mm. rather than you know in places where there is no written language mm -hmm. and um, he was telling a story about how when he had first gone to one of these villages up in Vietnam where they were speaking some other you know it's not always Vietnamese they're speaking yeah. other, some other um, local dialect or local language and he'd been working on it for like six months trying to learn and he had just hit a, a roadblock and couldn't just couldn't learn it. it mm -hmm. He was just completely stymied. He couldn't figure out even the basics of the grammar. And then he went on a, a one month sabbatical and wasn't thinking about it. You know, he's out with his family, he's doing stuff and he goes back. And when he walks back into the culture, he can understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So, while his brain was resting, it's processing all this input, right? And yeah. then, it, then it comes out. And that makes me think of something else, which is completely unrelated, but I just have to tell you. When I was studying linguistics at, in my graduate work, one of the stories they tell is about how babies who are uh, raised in multilingual homes, there's a little black box inside their heads that they can... Um, take in all the input from both of these languages. And then when it starts to come out, it's sorted. Okay. Right? So they yeah. have the vocabulary and the grammar for one language sorted into that package and they have the vocabulary yeah. in it. Now think about that. Yeah. That is like kind of unbelievable, right? It, 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 and that's one of those things where I think, and especially well, like in North Dakota, um, we're talking about a state that not that long ago, really in the grand scheme of things, almost everyone was bilingual. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go back, oh, okay. So if you go back to World War II era, mm -hmm. most of the population in the state was bilingual. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, most of the people, well, okay, most of the, most of the Indian tribe, most of the, they still had um, their respective languages on the reservations, you mm-hmm. know, and English, obviously, but there was still some existence of that. Um, you know, and there was the German contingent, then they also spoke English, and there's yeah. the Norwegian contingent, and they also spoke English. English. Yeah. The Ukrainians, and, the Ukrainians, oh yeah, they had yeah. their language and they also spoke English. Yeah, and so, and it wasn't until, you know, a lot of the attitudes, really the attitudes that came in during World War One, the English-only attitudes started to really kind of roll into kids growing up, mm-hmm. um, that that died down. And I really feel like we lost something with that, just mm-hmm. as far as the way people, is, it's, it's the way you process the world, it even, not even necessarily anything to do specifically with needing to know multiple, language, uh, multiple languages, because, I mean... You, Norwegian isn't that useful in the United States, but, <laughs> no, but you, you see meaning at different levels when you're because I, I lived in Japan for three years. So I had, mm-hmm. had to live within the Japanese language. And so yeah. I, I began to understand it at a level just where I could see their culture is formulated out of their language. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> completely different, but it's the language itself that both forms that and is formed by it. Yeah. And um, so we, we see the world differently through our language filters. Yeah. And um, being bilingual means that you're able to see, well, there's two different, it's like stochastic resonance or something. <laughs> there's, there's two different things happening there and it ups the amplitude of your understanding of many basic concepts. Yeah. So, um, you really lose something if you don't have that understanding of how language works. Even being able to even poorly render an idea in two languages, because once again, it's it's like words as containers Mm -hmm. because you, sometimes a word is insufficient and sometimes you just don't know how to sufficiently use the word. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like sometimes, you know, I have an idea and the word is three quarters of what I mean. Yeah. But maybe if you know the word in the other language that fills in the other quarter. And do you toss in a word from another language? Like my dad used to say, Fida. If you would. I said Fida earlier in this, actually. <laughs> well, what was the other one? Ufta. Ufta, yeah. That yeah. Was the other I'm word surprised that isn't, that's, anytime I don't know what to say, that's what I say. Well, there's, there's the da scale. Of, you know, Ufta is, is well, kind of like, you know. What is that? Something not so great happening to say Ufta, but like there's Fida, Ishta. You know, that sort of thing. That was, oh, that was yeah. the thing I don't know what any of those things mean, but I just remember hearing my dad say them. <laughs> and, and, but for me, that there were some Japanese words that can't be expressed in English at all. Yeah. One of those is taihen. <laughs> and taihen is this idea of, man, it's really hard right now, but I'm hanging on by my fingernails. I'm just hanging on, you know. It's like, <laughs> taihen is this very convenient word. Yeah. And another one is natsukashi. Uh-huh. She is this idea of, man, that is so nostalgic and it brings up all these memories of that particular time and the ambiance and the fragrance and everything, you know, it's all wrapped up in that word. It's just such yeah. a lovely word. We don't have that. <laughs> you, know, <it's- laughs> you, know, I, you know, Travis, we have to, we have to start again. Um, we'll again okay. Yeah. We'll have to do another one of these. Yeah. And so, Keep track of any ideas that you might want to talk about and try to keep me on track next time. <laughs> well, well, we'll probably have to both do that. <laughs> yeah. So this has been so great. I'm going to put as much information as I can in the, in the, uh, in the information section under the video. I'll send you the video and you can check okay. it and see what you think. 
and uh, and then if there is something you want me to put in the information section, just email me that. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, great. Thanks so much. You bet. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, very much.